More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Aza Fahmi, the women behind Egypt's most iconic jewelry brand. Luxury brand Aza Fahmi stands for some of the most sought after and highly regarded jewelry in the world. The studio's namesake, Egyptian designer, artist, and entrepreneur Aza Fahmi, who founded the atelier in 1969, now works closely with her daughters Fatma and Amina. Their sublime aesthetic draws inspiration from the traditional design elements in a retrospective glimpse of Middle Eastern history as far back as the Pharaonic era. We sat down with Azafahmi, Fatma Ghali and Amina Ghali to discuss family business dynamics, the erosion of artisanal skills and how relating craftsmanship to millennials may hinge on environmental sustainability. Enjoy the highlights from our discussion with Aza, Fatma and Amina. Our special feature of the next print issue is about the future of craftsmanship. And as we all know, this has a very strong link with the future of family businesses because most uh, craftsmanship-oriented businesses are family-owned and family-run. So that was our focus. And of course, uh, the reason why we found, like, why my team reached out to you in this context is because, you know, you are really, for us, the incorporation of the celebration of craftsmanship and how it can be taken into a very digital and futuristic world as well and how it can be celebrated anew. So this is the focus, really. So, But I would love to first start with, um, in craftsmanship, I've done a lot of these interviews now, it's usually and sons, okay? You have to agree with me. It's usually like, you know, X, Y, Z, and sons. I find it very refreshing that I'm sitting here with Aza Fahmi and daughters. This is very healthy. And I have a few questions about this first. I would love to know, when you started out so many years ago, did you ever have in the back of your mind already the intention that you wanted the girls to join? Or when did you realize that, the three of you actually realized, each individually, that you would want to work together? I started actually before the, the girls was in this world. Hmm. Actually, there was no plan in that time. You know what I describe it now? Because I'm writing my story now. In, you to are. In a, like an autobiography. Wow. Yes, it is really very strange to describe it as a, a piece of metal or a, an ornament uh, made out of uh, gold or silver or, uh, or wood how this piece really exchange uh, your 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 life and you have a huge emotion it's, it's like a love story really or something uh, came from uh, heaven but nothing was planned nothing was planned i have or maybe it was all planned Maybe, oh. maybe. <laughs> also look at that it was it was all planned <laughs> see it yes. Because since, since the, the minute, because I tried many things, you know, you will read it in my, I tried many things before I discovered that I, I will go to for, for this profession. The minute I sit on the professional, professional desk in Khan Khalili and 
start working with my hand, you know, five hours run like that, and it was sure this is the thing which I'm, I'm going to, to, to stay all my life in it, and nobody will take it from me. And in that, there is no plan. It is the plan. It was every day. It was a new thing. Every day, it was a new thing. Every day, after, I, I, I know things. And it was always successful stories, which is you plan for the, for the next day or the, 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 the next month. You know, really, the plan started when Fatma entered the company. And in that time, it was, I remember, because I'm writing now, I sent her to a marketing it was a conference, or uh, I don't remember. Uh, it, was a, it was a workshop about marketing. Okay. Because I was one, and I thought to increase the numbers. And I think we reached, I think in that time, uh, 25 or things like that. And, you know, I was doing, because I don't have anybody to help me, I was doing everything myself in the beginning. I am the designer, I'm the making, I'm, I'm everything. And this is was good because I now know every details about, you know, if you ask me about how many stamps you put it on the paper, I know this is five pounds and this is 150 and this is that. Because I did it myself. And I did it, I did it without any, uh, I'm a hero. No, I did it very simply and very smooth. I think this is because I was in love. Mm-hmm. When Fatma attended this workshop, she came back and she told me, Mommy, I think we have to have a marketing gear. Yeah. Okay. We don't have the money. <laughs> we don't have the money. Actually, you know, you have to meet Hisham because he wants to talk to you. And alhamdulillah, there is a lot of people which has helped me all this time. I don't know because maybe the story like them, maybe the pieces like, like them. I don't know. There was always people helping me. Mm-hmm. So I met Hisham. And then we start planning. You know, it's, it's also fascinating. You wrap decades of work into a few words and, you know, and the day-to-day of the struggle is incredible. It's like, I love this saying, uh, I don't know if you know the saying, um, it takes years to become an overnight success, right? Like, and I think this is exactly, it's exactly that. Uh, what I love it. Yeah, I love it too. So true, right? Like it takes so much. For us, you are like obviously iconic, and I think that it's it's so much work goes into becoming that kind of a brand and becoming so recognized. But I'd love to hear also from Amina and from Fatma, like when did it become clear to you that you wanted to join, that you actively wanted to be part of the family business? I mean, look in my business, in my family, just to give you an example, my parents called me one day and said, like Ramya, uh, come, you have to help Dad out for three months. That was 10 years ago, and I'm still here. So um, so how was it for you guys, uh, Amina Fatma? Like, how did you decide? I think our experiences are uh, have been very different, actually. Same and different. Okay, I'll, I'll say why. Growing up when we were young, we were very involved in the business, just by the nature of us traveling with my mom, helping her out, uh, doing, going to exhibitions. And so we were sort of ingrained in the business at a very young age. But when actually starting the actual work, for me, I was at college and I decided to go to the Faculty of Fine Arts here in Cairo. And then after joining, I realized it wasn't taking up so much of my time. And I actually had a lot of free time on my hands. So I said, okay, why not do part-time help in marketing with my mother? Mm-hmm. 
Um, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> That's and here I am 20 years later. Habibti, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> never for me, it was never planned and it was never a decision. Okay. It's sort of, I was like, okay, I'll start part-time, like you helping out your dad for three months and then <laughs> you're still there. Yes. For me, it was, um, it was very, very different. I feel like from a very, very young age, from school, I would rant to anyone that meets the future best designer in the world, you know, like I would rant like silly things to the point where in high school, uh, we had this uh, yearbook uh, and you had all these questions that people had to do a survey from the same uh, graduating class and they said most likely to succeed and everyone in my entire graduating class said Amina, they said she's the only one that knows what she wants what to do, wants like to. <laughs> them were just these random 16-year-olds not knowing what they want and I was like very like, you know, <laughs> this is where I'm going, this is where I'm going. Funnily enough, I, I dropped my entire, um, I was doing my GCSEs and I, I dropped all my subjects because I understood that for me to get accepted in a university in England, it would require an entire different kind of level of effort. Mm. And I really took the risk on, on dropping what was meant to be A-levels and all of that, just to really focus on art. And I'm very thankful that I had a mother who supported this craziness because everyone else was saying, if you don't get accepted universities abroad, you will not get accepted anywhere because mm. you don't have the credentials that would uh, support you. I got accepted abroad, but then they told me I was too young to join. We can't legally accept you into the system until you turn 18. And at that time, I had just turned 16. I had one more year to go, basically. Fatma had just uh, gone back from Italy. She was uh, doing um, art history and fine art in Italy. And she said, you know, instead of spending a year here in Cairo and waking up and being lazy and not doing anything until you go to university, why don't you actually go to Italy, you know, and learn a language, take up an art course, you know, do something beneficial for your life instead of like just sit on the couch for the next year or so. So at the time, uh, we had come across this uh, school called Alchemia and um, I sent the application but they read it instead of 1983, which is the year I was born, they read it 1973. <laughs> so I was this 27-year-old, okay, who was arriving in this tiny, tiny, tiny school in Florence. And the day I landed and went to the school, this is pre-internet, you had to go to internet cafes, there was no such thing as mobiles, you had to buy these silly cards and stand at the, like all these little things that you have to encounter just to, you know, be in contact of the school and these two owners look at me like how old are you and I say oh I'm 17 and they go okay we saw the wrong application but welcome anyway <laughs> so it turned out to be a very contemporary it's one of the best schools in Europe and it's a contemporary jewelry school that has 25 students but 25 students with 10 years experience Mm. You know, so they were all already established jewelry designers. And I was the 17-year-old who knows nothing about nothing. So I became everyone's baby. And it was all in Italian, by the way. 12 of teachers, course. all Italians, they don't speak a single word of English. After Italy, I went to Birmingham to where I now had started college. And you do what you, they say, what, uh, you do foundation years. So basically, you study all forms of art, play, fashion, photography, graphics, like really you do it all. But my heart was so inclined for the jewelry that it was like a no-brainer for me. 
it was just a natural progression. Like I was already believing in the brand so much before I even joined. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your relationships, um, your perceptions of each other changed when you started actually working together, all three of you? Like, was there a sort of a dynamic shift or was it a very, was it a very natural progression? For me, it was a very natural progression. I don't think I ever had a dramatic shift in perception from work versus the what I perceived before that. Mm-hmm. Because maybe, again, maybe we were involved all along. So yeah. all along, there was a thread of that. I think, yes, but in the way where most relationships would progress as you progress in age and maturity. Mm-hmm. I mean... I joined the business. I had just turned 21 or 22, maybe. I don't remember. And naturally, you're you're very young in your mind. And the more you, I think, on general, the more you evolve as a person, your relationship dynamics shift. So it's not anything that would be out of the ordinary. And I would have the same comparison as I would to have to my friends or to my, you know. But let us talk a little bit about craftsmanship in the context of Egypt as well and what it actually means, because we have to, I think we have to accentuate here in this discussion that what you have achieved is extraordinary for many reasons, but mostly also because you've managed to internationalize a craft and an Egyptian brand so globally in a time where actually everything that's craftsmanship and artisanal in a digital world is more declining. So you've really gone countercurrent in the growth of your brand. Like you've done something like everything is, is handmade. Everything is so personalized. Everything is so unique in a time where everything is focused on streamlining. Everything is focused on fast. Everything is focused on so totally different, totally opposed actually. So I just wanted to ask you if you can t- share with us a little bit more. First of all, the insights that you have in the state of craftsmanship in Egypt itself. Do you feel that you have an environment around you where the craftsmanship is still celebrated? Or is it really something that has become very dispersed and disseminated? Or do we still have that culture of preserving craftsmanship in Egypt today? Uh, this is the, the, the situation of crafts is a disaster. A disaster. No. Handmade things, they are uh, demolishing mm-hmm. everywhere. This has became a, a very concern in my mind. That's why I opened as a family design studio mm-hmm. and insist of giving the designers all techniques. We brought people from Japan. We brought people from here, filigree. I brought people to teach all techniques because I think if we if we succeed to, to keep this, maybe we will not succeed on the level, on the national level, but at least it will not disappear. Mm-hmm. And after that, now in July, we'll open the first craft school for Azafahmi for teaching craft people. Wow. But I want really uh, to, to revive what was in Germany in the 40s called the, the Bauhaus. Mm-hmm. Bauhaus is the good relation between the craftspeople and the designers mm-hmm. to bring something. And I'm thinking of not, not making as a masses in Egypt because I can't, this is the, the government work. But I want to create something very unique, very upscale pieces. Uh, not only jewelry, maybe we'll go to bags, we'll go to other things for all these old techniques, and we sell it internationally as top, pe- top pieces of Vaza. I want to add something to what she's saying. 
I think worldwide and not just in Egypt, it is a dying art. And I think in, in all industries, not just on the level of jewelry, on the level of everything, because the machine-made stuff has become so much more efficient and so much more, even financially, it made a lot more sense that somewhere along the way, people lost that um, feeling of wanting something handmade because it just became a lot more accessible for you to go to a ready-made shop and create your own bedroom versus call a carpenter in to really make your bed. But I think today in the last, uh, decade, people are starting to look for something special. They're tired of the high street fashion. They're tired of everything that is so available and so ready-made and has no character and no emotions. And I think worldwide, the wave of appreciation of handcrafted has started to shift again, including Egypt. Because once upon a time, everything that was in Egypt was handmade. So when you actually came to sell the handmade story, everyone was like, what's your big deal? Everything is handmade anyways. But then in 20 years, everything shifted because the market opened and all these ready-made furniture, clothes, yada, 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 was starting to come in. And the handmade went out the window and it became unavailable. And when it became available, it became a lot more expensive. Of course. People are going back slowly to, no, I do want to make the couch I do want to do this I do want to do that and in it within that umbrella the jewelry also came in so you find a lot of small people and I'm sure you noticed that the trends with the brands is that they emphasize so much on the handcrafted or the hand you know if they have a single bit in the piece or even if it's in the bag that is hand woven or hand this this is the bit that they really communicate even though it's a diminishing art I, I really hope and pray that it start, the curve will start going up because of that appreciation. I have a, a marketing question for Fatma here, because I think this is so interesting about what you guys have done in the sense that, so it's rare enough, unfortunately, to internationalize an Egyptian brand, right? But then when we encounter your presence anywhere, it is very interesting. Right? We have these beautiful pieces of jewelry that have a lot of nostalgia in them that are really beautiful, like that you see that the craftsmanship in it. But then your marketing approach is very modern. It's very digital as well. You're very strong. So you found this way to combining the two worlds in a way. And I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you, how do you combine those worlds without losing the identity of what you're doing? So I think it's a two-step. When you're talking about where others go wrong, I don't want to say they go wrong. I think in a lot of cases, people box themselves. They would say, if this is traditional, then we have to put it in a traditional context. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just simply where it's where it's not true. For example, we were having our latest shoot in LA, and the way Amina and the stylist work and put pieces that even we would perceive as quite classical and traditional, it's just how you put it. It's how you put it and how you style it. And it's also for us pushing ourselves further into doing that differently. Absolutely. It's so interesting. It all comes back to identity finding and identity, right? Like even of the person who buys the jewelry and from, so it's such a personal exchange, right? Like it's to buy something that's been handcrafted. It's very personal. I just wanted to, again, to bring it back though into the the context of maybe Egypt uh, as a country. I just, I, I marvel at it because our history 
is so very much built on craftsmanship. Like, you know, this is what uh, at our highest point in our civilization we would be known for. This is what has been distributed across the world as our heritage. And how can we sort of change that conversation? Uh, and, you know, like Amina said, she feels that there is a research of like awareness that people want to connect. But how can we sort of have this dialogue louder? What can we do to make this a more a more a louder conversation really that inspires more and more people i think for me i would say it's always making it relevant mm-hmm. it's always so if you talk about something in, in abstract it always remains a theory but when you actually get to experience so building on what haza was saying like for example with us taking beyond jewelry and moving into other areas where it's also based on craftsmanship so if you would get placemats that are beaded from women in uh, in south of the Red Sea, and then you'd, but it's, it needs to be stuff that is relevant that you use. Mm-hmm. And I think, I believe the more you use things, the more you become, of course, then it's, it's the, it's the role of the brands to educate people what they're using, but then it's something that's in your life. Mm-hmm. It's not an article that you've just read once and you forgot about it because you read about someone in Guatemala that does, I don't know what, and then you forgot about it. And I think building on what Amina was saying with the trend is also with the environmental trend because people are moving away from plastic. They're moving away from the mass produced, all that kind of things. And they're actually now asking, okay, where was this mug made? Or where was this cup made? Or what is it made of? And that's an amazing opportunity for that world to come and say, okay, you know what? Because craftsmanship by nature supports communities because people actually get to work and then people get to buy it and then it works. And in most cases, it usually uses materials that are not that harmful because I don't know too many craftsmen that use plastic, you know what I mean? Or use, it's probably stuff that techniques and stuff that they use from the old times. So it's, and it's nature. And so I think it's very relevant to the conversation today that's happening. And the conversation is already happening, mm-hmm. especially with the younger generation. Uh, now it is the, the challenge. You take from the past, but you have to introduce to the future mm-hmm. in another way. Mm-hmm. I have a hypothesis based on this conversation. <laughs> the beautiful traits here between all of you is like, you know, Madame, you have kept a very open mind. And I think this is very rare in the master of the craft, right? Like, so what we see a lot of craftsmanship is lost because it becomes a family business problem. The father or the grandfather only sees the craft in one way, does not want to improve, does not want the next generation to add anything. And you have obviously bypassed all of these pitfalls by saying like, you know, Amina brings a new idea, Fatma brings a new idea, I consider it, I'm open to it. And this brings me a little bit to the question, like, you know, if the future of craftsmanship is really female, because um, it's interesting how most of this... (laughs) It's true. I'm asking you. It's just really interesting because a lot of the problems that you see is, of course, because craftsmanship traditionally, in most cases, has been father to son. The primogenitor has the principle has been mostly maintained in craftsmanship. So maybe you can share with me a little bit more on your thoughts on whether you think the fact that you are women has something to do with the fact that you've succeeded in doing this. And or if you see this happening more now in Egypt and also beyond, that craftsmanship is handed from mother to daughters, or at least from father to daughters, and if you think this will have an influence on whether these crafts will survive or not. Yes, I think adding was to what uh, what my mother was saying, and, and and a little bit an answer to your question also. I feel like also the first person that does anything is always the hardest. 
because you're breaking a lot of dogmas, structural, social, gender. And I feel after that, even though it still could be really difficult for the people that come after you, but actually they have it easier because someone has set something for you. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, he's he's basically laid the road for you. So Mm -hmm. you're still on a pretty rough road, but there is a road. And I feel if you even take it a hundred years back, like you were saying, the fashion and craft industry and the jewelry industry has been a male-dominated industry for centuries after centuries after centuries because it was hard. Uh, it was hand labor, which required a more physical uh, man to do it. But I think when you get women uh, like Miriam Haskell, you know, in the 50s in, in, in the U.S. with pioneering with jewelry and you get the likes of Coco Chanel, you know, with her deciding that she's going to break all boundaries. And my mother here from this region, it's a little bit you're paving the way for other designers and other industries to say, you know what, if she can do it, I can do it as well, you know. And then you start what I feel is a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, like you get a perfect example of that is, you know, Elisabe in the 90s and the early 2000s when he went to Paris from Lebanon. No one knew where Lebanon is anyways. I mean, it was just like this country that has a civil war. And and then all of a sudden, he put Lebanon on the map. Yeah. And now you say, oh, you know, Lebanon, Beirut, of course, they have a gazillion fashion designers. And I think this is what my mother also was trying to accomplish mm-hmm. with opening a school here because you want in a decade for people to say Egypt and then automatically have that association with jewelry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's loads of designers coming from that uh, industries. And then all of a sudden there's the recollection of past, you know, oh, they've always been good, you know, for thousands of years they've always, you know, and then all of a sudden it was like, a, it's given that the region had that. But I feel what the importance of what my mother is doing now is will will set the tone for a lot of people i knew you were amazing but it's just been confirmed again so this is this amazing interview ladies honestly i'm so inspired this is fantastic thank you for listening to the family business voice subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.